I don't care if it's Corona, if it's 2010, 2009, you know, you can name a period in time. If you buy it right, time heals all wounds in real estate. When you get over your head and you make a mistake, it's typically because you either over leverage or overpaid. Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate. From co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on my deals. If you're thinking about investing passively in real estate and you want to learn how to evaluate a deal, I created a free guide that walks you through the top five critical deal components that any passive investor must examine, especially today in COVID time. So you can find the guide on my website, ellieperlman.com. All right. So today on a show, I'm hosting John Cohen and John is the co-founder of Toro real estate. He has been investing in real estate since 2010 and focuses on deals where he can add a tremendous value. So since starting in real estate, he has been involved in over $500 million worth of various real estate transactions, including tax liens, rental, and sale transactions in Manhattan, vacant land, single family flips, and multifamily value add deals. Welcome to the show, John. Ellie, thank you for having me. I'm excited to you know tell my story, tell to you know my opinions. Yeah, of course. And you do a lot of interesting things in real estate. I think it would be interesting for me and for the listeners to hear a little bit more about your background and you know how you got started in real estate, basically. Yeah. So I went to college. I played baseball in college. I was not you know a student, right? It was not the forte of what I was doing, but. Throughout the whole time, you know, I, I've always had sales jobs. I've always been on the sales side of things. I'm 33 years old. I've never had a job that I got paid by the hour. It's always been on the sales side. So it first started, you know, selling Cutco knives, and then it was selling different insurance products for, you know, cash advances. So I realized that, you know, those were all great. You know, the, the my big vision was, you know, I want to sell big buildings in the city, and you know, selling a hundred million dollar product would have been better than selling a lot of smaller products. So. The transition for me was after college, I got a job as a financial advisor. I was a stockbroker, you know, selling stocks and bonds and realizing that I had no control. So I wanted to find something that I could control to a degree, but at the same time, use the sales skills that I developed and see what I could do. And the transition was, you know, while I was working, while I was in high school, while I was in college, I had purchased some real estate. So I understood that space really well. I liked the component that I could see, feel and touch it. And it wasn't just, you know, a small equity position in Facebook or Google or whatever it was. So while I was in finance, when Facebook IPO, I actually got hired and quit my job at the exact same time. It was a nine month interview process. I got hired. I walked into my boss's office and I quit. And I said, I wanted to be a real estate investor because I had some prior transactions that I've done with my own money. 
And I said, this is great. So I was sitting in my backyard in the middle of the summer and I was like, I'm a real estate investor. But I realized that you don't make that much money right away. So I went down the path of being a traditional rentals and sales. You know, I was doing rentals and sales in the city uh, with the ultimate goal being commercial real estate. And after a couple of years doing rentals and sales, realized that the hustle was great. But if I'm going to hustle this hard, let's do it for bigger projects. So I went down the commercial brokerage route. I interviewed at all the big shops. I ended up taking a job at Marcus and Millichap, where my boss at that time had convinced me to do multifamily investment sales. Awesome. So you basically started with multifamily from the sales side and that's how you got experience and you know gained a lot of knowledge. Was all that done back in New York? Yeah. So I was working as a real estate agent strictly 100% in New York. It started mm-hmm. in the city, downtown, the financial district doing rentals and sales. I parlayed that up into doing multifamily investment sales in Brooklyn and Queens. So it was 100% focused in, you know, in my backyard in New York. Got it. I think it's a good segue to start talking about assets and your focus is multifamily and you buy multifamily properties across the US, but you live in New York. Obviously now in COVID times, you know, we all know that New York is kind of, or used to be a hot zone and it's getting (laughs) better now. And from an investment standpoint, I think it's a pretty challenging, you know, sub market or a market in general. But, you know, back then when you started buying multifamily properties, what made you buy outside of New York? I mean, you're just there. It's, you know, in your neck of the woods. So why not buy in New York pre-COVID times? Yeah. So in about 2012, 13, 14, that's when I was in the city working in the real estate space. And when I got the itch, I was flipping some houses and I was doing some single family stuff and some tax deed stuff. All the tax deed stuff I bought was out of state. So I was very familiar with out of state investing. All that stuff was super rough, very heavy lifting. So I had no issues about being able to renovate, manage a transaction across, you know, in, you know, not in my backyard. The major reason for not buying something in New York was the war stories that I heard as a broker, tenants not paying rent and taking 12 months to evict, landlord tenant laws being absolutely horrible. You know, they're not much better in California. You know, the, the landlord yeah. tenant laws are not good. You know, a tenant's going to run the show. You sort of just give him a place to live. And the war stories I heard, I heard, you know, tenants being there for 18 months, not paying a nickel. And when I was selling buildings, I was not selling $100 million properties. I was selling six families, eight families, 12 families, average price between 600 and maybe 2 million. And when you look at a six unit and you look at a rent roll and you see five rent stabilized tenants where you could, you know, you used to be able to, you know, do capital improvements and increase rents. Now you can't even do that. But back then you look at it and the guy's paying $1,500. You had, there were so many hurdles to get over to raise that rent to market that I looked at it and said, well, if I could buy a six unit for a million two and potentially have the risk of one or two tenants not paying and me fighting them in court and legal costs and all that, my first transaction I bought was a million dollars and it was a 48 unit property. So I just basically said, and I don't recommend people do this, but I, you know, I don't, buy out of state because it's cheaper. I buy out of state because the risk reward, the upside, the flexibility, how quickly you can evict. And inevitably when you buy a property that's 50% occupied, if you fill it up, if you use the same cap rate or cap rate expansion, you're going to create a ton of value to the property. Where in New York, your value isn't necessarily created operationally. It's more value creation over 
appreciation and time of owning a physical piece of real estate in New York. I was more geared towards getting in, doing what I have to do, refinancing or selling and getting that value and then moving into another property. So for me, the decision was, you know, landlord tenant laws aren't favorable. The risk of having a smaller property and having two or three vacancies. Now the vacancy was super low in New York, so it might not have been a risk, but I just didn't want to deal with the landlord tenant stuff. Yeah. And that's very key. And I think, you know, you're right on the money. I mean, this is why I don't buy anything in California for the exact same reason. If someone doesn't want to pay, and I'm not even talking about COVID times because it's a little bit of an anomaly. And we'll talk about that in a second. It can take 12, 18 months for me to evict someone that doesn't want to pay. And during that time, I'm paying out of pocket the property, you know, that unit is not an asset. It's, it turns into a liability because I have to pay you know, all the expenses that are kind of related to pour out a share of that door when it comes to the expenses. So I totally get it. I personally think it's the right thing to do. It doesn't mean that New York is not a good investment market. It's for different type of buyers, maybe buyers who, you know, more, they don't care about cash flow. They care about appreciation. And right now I can tell there's not much appreciation in New York. And so there's so much you can control when it comes to appreciation in core markets. It's basically supply and demand and cap rates, things you don't have really control over when you're buying in in a better location. Like you said, I can buy half vacant building and build up, increase the valuation right away. I can improve it. I can push rents and the value increases. So that's forced appreciation, which is much, much easier to do outside of New York, California, San Francisco, all those core markets. A hundred percent. We don't want to bet on possibility we want yeah. to bet on actual facts. And if I know a two bedrooms rent for 800 in my building and I have five vacant two bedrooms, I can underwrite that to rent at 700 or and even 800. And without even a rent push, just by filling it up, you're forcing the appreciation. Whereas in you know core markets, you're sort of relying on a lot of stuff, which is one of the reasons why I got into real estate. You're relying on stuff that's more or less out of your control. And then something like Corona happens and now it's really out of your control. Yep. To some extent. Yeah, that's totally true. So speaking about COVID, what do you do, John, to protect your assets during this unprecedented, you know, virus that, you know, times and obviously nobody really saw it coming. What are kind of the maybe top one or two things that you do to protect your assets today? So the one thing starts prior to buying a property prior to Corona, well capitalized going into your business plan. Don't go into your business plan with, you know, every single penny accounted for. We come to the table with capital with capital and a lot of it. And partially because you don't want to have a capital call, partially because you never know. It's better to give money back in the first six months or a year than it would be to say, well, you know, we're cutting it a little close. That happened before Corona. I would say now during these times, you know, where we would normally do distributions, we told everybody, we're going to skip a distribution. We're going to keep a little extra money in the bank to protect for a rainy day. What happens if this thing goes on for another six months? What happens if unemployment doesn't, you know, get back down to eight and it, you know, it's not getting back to four right away, but what happens if we stay a little bit more in place? So I would say super well capitalized is the number one thing. I don't think enough people talk about in real estate, everyone, you know, all the sponsors and syndicators and all coaches and masterminds and everything out there. You know, everyone talks about buying a deal, flipping it, renovating it, you know, making a ton of money, but capitalization is key and it gives you the flexibility where if a bank doesn't want to give you their draw or whatever it may be, if you have good capital and well capitalized, you can overcome a lot of problems. So I'd say the number one thing I tell everybody, you know, have extra capital. The other thing that we did from a prevention or from a protection standpoint was really got in the weeds 
with our tenants. You know, we did not just sit back and let third party management do their thing, right? And we just sort of hands off. We got upfront and in person and on the phone with, you know, the property managers. Hey, what are the tenants saying? Let's hear them out. Let's get on calls. Let's, we got in the weeds on everything. You know, we were getting collection reports every single day. We were one, we had a survey that was going out, you know, what can we do better? How can we help? You know, we were doing, you know, giving the tenants, Hey, these are charities. These are areas in the location that can help pay your rent. We were working with our tenants more than we ever have just saying, Hey, we're not throwing you out. We're working with you. How can we help you maintain your payments? You know, here's how you request unemployment. Here's how you do it. We'll help fill it out. So we were just upfront and in their faces, which yes, it's not as passive as most. That's what we do. And that's why we have passive investors. We're doing that stuff for you. But it's an approach that I think we're going to continue doing even after this. Just, you know, what can we do to help our tenants as opposed to the alternative, which is sort of just let them run their course and see what happens. So I think that was a very good thing we did. And for the last three plus months, you know, all our calls are different. It's not, you know, how many more people filed for unemployment? How many people are, you know, are taking advantage of the Corona discounts that we were giving? We were tracking that stuff and not necessarily if a guy was five days late on his rent, right? We were tracking that, but why was he late? Was he late because he was waiting mm-hmm. for a paycheck? He was waiting for unemployment. We were understanding the reasons behind things and really getting in the weeds on that. So I would say, you know, you know, really well capitalized and just understanding your tenants' needs during times like this and how you can provide from them. We had one property where we, you know, it's a C-class property. We actually supplied food to people that were in need of it because they might not have had it. So we said, hey, here you go. You know, here's a concession on your rent. What do you need? Pay the rent and we'll take care of the rest. So we were just going above and beyond showing our community that we're here for them to help to keep that community vibe. So they want to be their safe, comfortable, clean place to live. And hopefully, you know, it's shown signs so far that it was a really good decision by us. Yeah. And I think what you said is very, very important and actually extraordinary. So you're not only super hands-on, which I think it's exactly what you should do. That's what your investors are paying you. So when times are good, you can be a little bit more, you know, hands-off. But when it's kind of all hands on deck right now, and you got to be proactive, you got absolutely be there speaking with the PM every day. And that's what we, you know, do as well. And I like the other part of what you said is, you're human. You're not just an investor looking at the bottom line. You understand that they're real people behind it. You're not just looking at the delinquency report. You're basically looking at people who are struggling and might not even have enough money to buy food. And so I think that combination is very powerful. And you don't only do that to make them pay when they can, but it's also kind of, I think that human element that you cannot turn away from. These are people that you can help. And if you can do that, I mean, that's maybe not the most important. I I don't know how to kind of see that and see investors' returns. They're both important. But when people are are starving and don't have money to buy food, then I think that should take, you know, precedent over everything else. I agree. I read an article during the, you know, early parts of this Corona stuff. I think it was in The Real Deal where a landlord in Brooklyn basically said, you know, nobody has to pay me this month, right? You know, and he had enough money where he was able to know we have debt service and we have mortgages on our property. So, you know, I saw that article and said, you know, I wish I was in the position to just tell all the residents, hey, what can we do, right? Let's work through this. And we did what we could, obviously maintaining our investor relations. That was the other thing, you know, we were, you know, every other day sending out emails, talking to our investors, trying to reach out to everybody quarterly. And we touched almost all of them throughout this period. But we basically said, hey, listen, here's the situation. We're humans. We're paying our debt service. We ran models internally to say, okay, how bad would it get before we would have a capital call? Mm -hmm. And we just felt really good about it. 
And, you know, yes, you're right. Now, if you look at a tenant ledger and a guy's a bad tenant, you don't treat that guy the same as a tenant that has never missed a payment in two years, right? So you got to understand that and fair housing aside, and maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong. You treat everybody equally, but at the same time, you realize if a tenant has never missed a payment and they prove to you that they got laid off because of Corona, you got to treat that person as if you would treat everybody else. But if someone's always late, never paying, always catching up, always has an excuse, you do it by the book, but at the same time, you work with the community and you show that goodwill. Because I personally believe that goodwill pays off. It might not be today, but six months from now when you're 100% occupied and your competitor's 50 because he didn't care, it's going to show off on the balance sheet, on your cash flow, on your investor returns, six, 12, 18 months from now. 100%. And it sounds like your properties are doing well, which is great. And that kind of leads me to the strategy portion of the show. Should we buy real estate now or not? So as a strategy, do you think investors should keep buying properties right now or should they wait to see what's going to happen? So I tell people, here are the facts. Transactions are down, right? I think transactions are down 50% in New York and across the board. You talk to brokers and sellers and everybody buying, there's a million sale. Deals are not taking place. What my philosophy, now I'm closing on a deal tomorrow. I'm closing all cash, no debt. I've, you know, I'm taking the risk off the table, but this is a deal we put under contract in December. It's actually a smaller mobile home park. So it's a little bit different, but I tell people a good deal is a good deal, right? If you're buying it right. And if you look at our whole portfolio, we pride ourselves on basis. You make your money when you buy, right? The two things in real estate, location, 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 and you make your money when you buy if you have a physical piece of real estate that is a great piece of real estate in a great location and you buy it right, I don't care if it's Corona, if it's 2010, 2009, you know, you can name a period in time. If you buy it right, time heals all wounds in real estate. When you get over your head and you make a mistake, it's typically because you either over leverage or overpaid. That's typically when things go wrong. So I'm not advising people go out and just buy anything that comes in because we've been underwriting deals throughout this whole process. We're nowhere close to what sellers want. So we are not buying anything right now, but we are offering on deals. Now, are we offering at a Corona discount? Absolutely, right? Here's the facts. 40 million people are unemployed, unemployment's high, multifamily follows job growth. If jobs don't come back and people lose their jobs, multifamily although it's the most resilient in a recession, you still need jobs because jobs support income, income pays bills and people pay their rent. So I do think multifamily is set up demographic wise to do really, really well for the next 10, 20, 30 years. But at the same time, rent growth is going to be less. Delinquency will be higher. There'll be more concessions. So we're factoring that into our underwriting and maybe I'm being a little too conservative, but luckily you know, we've set our business up where, yes, we syndicate deals, we sponsor deals and we raise money, but we also contribute, you know, 30, 40% of the equity, our own equity. So we're invested in our own deals. And if I'm not willing to buy a deal 100% my own money, I will not go raise money for it. So if I'm committed to it, we're going to buy. But at the same time, we are taking necessary precautions, right? Our acquisition side has turned into asset management because we're not as active on the acquisition. So I would say my recommendation, a good buy, a good basis, a good piece of real estate, buy it. And especially if it checks off your boxes, right? If you're looking for a 6% cash flow and you're going to go put 10-year debt on it, do it, right? There's nothing wrong with that. 
But if you're looking to be in and out of a transaction in 18 to 36 months with heavy levered bridge debt, I would say go to bed, go to sleep, wake up, see if you still like the deal. Because those are the deals that I think are going to run into some trouble. You know, good long-term agency stuff, you know, low leverage, 60, 65, 70%. I don't think values are going down 30%. Could they go down? Yes. We haven't seen it yet, but transactions are not transacting right now. But the easy part is yes, we are actively buying, but it's got to check all our boxes. We're not going to budge because of any other reason other than if we want it or not. Yeah. I think that's a very, very good answer because there are some things that, you know, right now you cannot underwrite with the same assumptions that you have obviously before COVID. So one of the things we're doing, all the things that you do, in addition, for instance, we push the renovations to start at month six or 12 or 18, depending on the market and, you know, how strong we think it is, because you can't, you know, normally we would start at month one, we take over, we start renovating all the vacant units and then as they turn and now we're still renovating, but it's at a much, much slower pace. And it's based on whether the tenant tells us, yes, I want, you know, a renovated unit only after they sign a contract, we're, we're going to, you know, basically renovate. And so you're right. I think the same way there are good deals to be done today, there are bad deals to be done today, and there were good and bad deals a year ago. You know, when everyone was excited about multifamily and felt soup, I mean, that's when I actually felt that I should be more careful because this is going to end at some point. We didn't know when the music is going to end. We assumed it will be, but nobody knew when. And assuming that the growth, the rent growth is going to continue three, four, five percent year over year for the next five or 10 years is just unrealistic. And now we're more realistic or I think I would say most investors are more realistic and they adjusted their expectations when it comes to returns. Because when, like you said, when you're looking at an agency debt and a loan to value drops from 75 pre-COVID to 65 post or during COVID, we're not in post-COVID times yet, returns, I mean, are not the same. By definition, they cannot be the same. And so I wanted to ask you, John, what do you think from what you see? What is the number one mistake that you see investors make today? This would probably be a little different than how the conversation's been going so far. I think the biggest mistake yeah. people make is not getting involved in one way, shape, or form, right? Whether it be underwriting more deals, offering on more deals. But I think the number one mistake is that people that want to do this, they think of excuses for not doing it, right? So the biggest mistake that I see all over and time and time again, and I do it myself, you know, we look at our underwriting from deals that were listed four years ago that are back on the market now. And, you know, we offered 16 million and now they're on the market at 30 million. You're like, ah, you know, could we have pushed a million dollars? Probably. Now, times were different. We all get that. And no one knew when the music was going to stop, if it was going to stop. But I would say the biggest mistake people make is buying future projections and not getting involved. You know, people buy projections and they pay for it, right? I'm going to pay a lower cap rate because I can renovate everything and move the needle on income. But, you know, there's tax adjustments, there's insurance adjustments. Insurance is a changing game every single day. If you don't adjust for your taxes going up, if you don't adjust for insurance premiums going up, you know, you can't just slap a cap rate on, you know, an income. You know, income has to be able to offset your taxes and your insurance increase and then go higher to be able to get a return. So I think that, you know, biggest mistake is not getting involved. And then right behind that is I think people are, they're underwriting 
by what people are telling them and not by physically being in the weeds, seeing what insurance premiums are doing, watching the taxes go up and stuff like that. And I think those are just, they're killing deals left and right because nobody assumes that. When you buy a deal value add and you're buying it for 10 million and you're selling it for 20, well, you have to underwrite a $20 million sale. What's going to happen to taxes for your buyer? Because if they're going to go up, you're not going to get 20. You might only get 17. So I think that not getting involved, but shortly right after that is just really understanding the expense side of this business because it fluctuates. And if you don't know it, you know, your expenses could be way the hell off really quickly and that'll seriously hurt your business plan. Yeah. And you can actually hire professionals or have some sort of relationship with them when it comes to insurance, when it comes to property tax. I'm not an expert in either of those. And I work with people that basically handle that part of the company and they can look and, you know, on your performa and say, this is how much I would, you know, account for every year for the next five or six or seven years. So it's not up to me to guesstimate what would be the property tax three years from now. I have a guy that is contesting all of our property tax bills and he's the right guy to do that. So if somebody feels that they're not, they don't even know how to evaluate the expenses three years from now, what? I'm not sure if this is what they should be doing underwriting, but they should have some sense of what it would be. But if they want to sharpen their pencils and see that they're not, you know, sometimes $15,000 hit or miss is kind of a blip in when it comes to property tax on a really big property, but that can do wonders and not in a good way to your cash flow. And so definitely, definitely look into that. And I, I think you're right. I mean, insurance costs increase. We saw a huge increase by almost 30% even last year. And so if you're looking at the T12, you're assuming that that's going to be the same, you know, you're going to get same premiums as, you know, like the T12, that's not going to be the case. And I think you're absolutely right. And you have um, to and, ask the questions. Yeah. I think you have to, yes. you know, when, when brokers or sellers, you know, we see some sellers that we, you know, we talk to sellers directly and, you know, my insurance is 150 bucks a unit. I'm like, that's just, you know, that's not going to be the case going forward. You know, no. we own a thousand units in this market and this is our insurance premium. So you have to educate them because their job is to sell the deal, right? If they say, oh, I can get yeah. a quote at 200 bucks a, a unit, we'll say then provide it because they'll provide you a quote, you give it to your insurance expert and your deductible is a half a million dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a major deductible. So you've got to have the right people on your team for sure. And you got to challenge them when they tell you it's going to be this way. Well, prove it. And if they prove it, have an expert review it to say, well, yeah, no, the premium's 200 bucks because you're deductible or you're not replaced, you know, you have no replacement cost or whatever the case may be. So definitely bring in the experts for sure. So you're hundred percent right. All right. And so John, I want to talk about the process of selling a property during a pandemic. So you said that you're buying right now. And I actually want to ask from both sides of the table, what kind of some tips that you have for someone who's buying a property right now and also for someone who wants to sell their property? Yes. So on the buy side, obviously, depending on your location, being able to access units and stuff like that, we will not buy a property if we don't walk 100% of the units. You know, there are brokers now sending, you know, walk 10% of the units and assume that's the case across the property. If, you know, we're not going to do that. We're never going to buy that property. Unfortunately, it's a pass for us. Get in the weeds on the buy, right? Go through the financials. The CARES Act would not allow you to charge late fees. It would not allow you to charge month-to-month fees. There were things that you were not allowed to charge so if you're looking at financials and you see, you know, if the guy's owned the property for four years and the other income has historically been 8% and now it's down at one, 
I'm not advising people to say, well, we're going to get back to eight, but understand that your financials are going to be a little different for the last three to six months going forward because we're still under these new rules. And when you're selling or when you're buying, you just got to understand that, right? You have to make the decision that you can go to bed with saying, I believe that in a year, we're going to be right back to where we were with other income. Uh, simultaneous, looking at all that, you know, your rent growth, your unemployment, your concessions, the stuff that affects your income, you've got to double, triple, and quadruple check those numbers because that's where you're going to make or big. Your expenses are what your expenses are and you can understand them, but you want to understand that. And then the other part on the buy side, construction, right? how fast can construction get done? You know, are people not being able to get into units? Do they have to wait 14 days? You have to understand, you know, if you think you could renovate a hundred units in a year, maybe not, right? People may want to renew their rent. They may not want to leave. So you really have to understand that and you have to model it out. Cause if you think you're going to turn a hundred units and you renew 20% of your tenants, your business plan is going to be wrong. So you really got to get into the weeds on the detail stuff on the underwriting side, on the how fast it could happen, how quickly you want to raise rents, whole nine yards. And that's on the buy side. The buy side, whatever due diligence you did before, you got to do a double check, right? You got to do it over and you got to stress test your deals. Uh, I think stress testing everything, making sure that it can support a break-even occupancy of 70, 80, you know, how many tenants not have to pay. And you have to work some numbers. On the sales side, we sold a deal. The guy asked for a retrade. We told him no because the property was performing phenomenally. This was in May, so really, really early on. We ended up giving him a little bit of money because he, he released some money. But we just had a deal that fell out of contract today, actually. And I actually called my partner and said, you know, we are not going to market with any of our deals. I just can't see a deal going to market and buyers taking it as serious as they once did. Because I think there are a lot of people out there that have chalked 2020 up as a loss. And they're just, hey, we're not buying until we come out of the other end of this. So on the sell side, I would say just like anything else, understand when you give your financials out, explain things, right? Tell people why, hey, this is the CARES Act. It's completely out of my control. Nothing I can do about it. And I'm not going to take a discount because I couldn't charge a late fee, right? That to me on the sell side, it's not worth it. So we're not selling for that reason. On the sell side, I think it's just a matter of accommodating a buyer. Maybe this is too much information, but if I was selling a deal today, I would look for a need. I would make sure my buyers were committed to the deal, whether they were in a 1031, whether it was a personal portfolio deal, whether they were raising money and they had all the money in the bank, whether they had a bank commitment. Make sure there's a commitment and a level of money that they're willing to invest in getting the deal done. You know, I'm not saying you got to get hard money day one because we all know it doesn't necessarily mean anything, but make sure when you go to market, or you sell a deal that there's a commitment from the buy side because you don't want your management company to get a little, you know, what's going on. You don't want your tenants to get uneasy because now not only do you have Corona, but you have a new owner coming in. So before you uproot your property, make sure there's a financial component from the buy side to make sure they're not going to bail on you two months, three months into this thing. Mm -hmm. So just be super cautious, ask the right questions, make sure they're committed you know, those are the things that you want to understand on the sales side because you don't want to deal to go to contract, fall apart, and then you're picking up the pieces. It's the yeah. worst thing that can happen. So you want to take all the element of doubt and risk off the table when you're getting ready to sell. And maybe that is, you know, market value was 10 million. I'll sell it at nine right today. So mm -hmm. maybe it is a concession in price. Maybe it's just a concession in due diligence. If you want to sell something, 
you got to make sure the buyer's committed and they're going to close. And that's the number one thing I can recommend anyone do on the sales side. Do not have a false start because it's going to take you six to 12 months to pick up the pieces you know, from a failed contract. That's a very, very solid and very good piece of advice. So thank you for that. So we have arrived to the lightning round questions. We're going to start. So John, what's your favorite hobby? I would say I'm a Yankee fan, big baseball player, big baseball Ooh. in college. So this is the first summer of my life where I cannot watch baseball or do anything. So I'm figuring out a new hobby as we speak, although it's coming back. So I'm happy. <laughs> All right. So what's the number one thing that people don't know about you? I would say is that I am pretty shy in the grand scheme of things. You know, I have a podcast. I'm out there. I do the networking, but if I can go buy a house in the mountains and be with my wife, my daughter, my family, I do that a hundred out of a hundred times. Wow. Okay. I wouldn't have guessed. What do you wish that you knew when you just started in real estate? Yes. I tell this all the time to my parents. I wanted to play shortstop or second base for the Yankees. I wish they would have told me or taught me, you know, about a value-add multifamily because the information you know now, buy a property below market rent, buy a property that's not occupied. If I would have known that when I was 15, I would not have wanted to be a professional baseball player. I would have started doing this earlier. So I would say uh, the one thing I wish I would have known more, my parents are the most supportive. They gave me everything I possibly could have wanted as a kid. And it's a joke that we say, you know, they go, it's the most expensive baseball team you ever played on was college. And I say, yes, but, you know, if you would have taught me differently, I probably wouldn't have went to college. But no, I would say just, you know, I wish I would have, you know, read more. You know, here's a full disclosure. I've never read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I'm probably the only person in the real estate space that hasn't read it. I wish I would have done that stuff 15 years ago. All right. So my last question is, what's your number one advice for real estate investors who want to scale their business or their portfolio? Number one advice is gotta have a big network. I tell people all the time, real estate deals don't go A to Z 100% according to plan. The successful real estate investors are the people that can identify a problem and or fix that problem quickly. The easiest way to fix a problem is to network, get on a podcast, listen to podcasts, reach out to the guests, reach out to the who's hosting the show, you know, get into their face. Cause when you have a problem, you can reach out to someone and say, hey, you know, can you help me fix this, right? So the faster you can fix a problem, the faster and more successful you will be. You'll be able to scale a hundred times over and outsource everything you hate doing. Write a list, pros and cons. If you hate doing it, find someone to do it for you because it'll free up time and time is the number one resource you can never get back. Very, very well said. If people want to reach out to you and find more about you and your company, where can they find you? Best way to find me is probably email. You can reach directly out to me. It's John, J-O-H-N, at Toro, T-O-R-O-R-E-P.com. You go to our website, ToroREP.com. You could reach out to me on Facebook. Instagram is at John underscore JC. I'm not the best at social media, so I would say email. If someone sends me an email, I will definitely get back to him in 24 to 36 hours. All right, perfect. Well, John, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It was fun having you on the show and I hope to touch base with you uh, pretty soon. Absolutely. I appreciate it, Ellie. Thank you very much for having me.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.